Hello, pod friends, and welcome back to Panam. I'm your host, Amber. Today, I'm going to carry on with shop signs. I'll take you to see two one that is still here and one that is gone, but both deal with the thorny, and by thorny, I mean completely awful, subject of France's colonial past. So let's pick up where we left off and head back to the Rue Mouffetard to start with. Until recently, and by recently I mean 2017, you would have been able to see the rather controversial sign at number 14 Rue Mouffetard, just at the Place Contrescar and practically opposite Hemingway's old flat. It was removed after being regularly vandalised and calls made for it to be taken down, as it was felt to be offensive and inappropriate. So, what was so shocking? Well, it was a large 18th century painted wooden sign advertising the wares of what once had been a chocolate shop. Written in big letters were the words Au Negre Joyeux, at the Happy Negro. Below, the picture depicted a young black man, smiling, elegantly dressed in typical 18th century clothes. He stands at a table holding a bottle in his hand. At the table is a young white woman. In her hands, she holds a silver tray with a silver pot, presumably for hot chocolate, and a sugar bowl, also in silver. On the table, there's a white tablecloth, and we can see a bottle of what could be absinthe. Two cups and some biscuits on a rather elegant silver tray. It looks quite fancy, wealthy. Upon first glance, the black man appears to be waiting on the white woman. It's not only what we expect, but of course fits into the horrible narrative of slavery and colonialism. This makes the wording above, au negre joyeux, especially distasteful, as it feeds into the most insidious myths about slavery, the idea that people might be content to live in bondage, and that we therefore do not need to feel bad or ashamed about it. However, the sign is more complex. As I said, at first glance, it seems as if the man is waiting on the woman. But upon closer inspection, we can see that he has a napkin around his neck, that the woman is in fact wearing an apron and a little maid's cap. It is in fact her who's waiting upon him. So, said those who defended the sign, it's not a symbol of slavery, and by assuming that the black man is waiting on the white woman, it is you who is seeing what you expect to see, rather than what is in front of you. Some say it is irrelevant, what is happening in the picture, and that the language is just no longer acceptable and it should be removed. Still, others said that this sign is part of French history, a reminder of colonialism, and should be kept as a reminder of what happened in the past. Others felt that it should stay, but there should be a plaque explaining what people are seeing so people understand. But what is it that they are seeing? The young black man depicted in this image is apparently based on a real person, Zamor. Now, the story of Zamor is anything but happy. He was taken, sorry, I mean stolen, from his family from what is in modern-day Bangladesh when he was a child. I've read he was 8 or 11. Either way, very young and absolutely heartbreaking. He was then given as a page to Madame de Barry. Madame du Barry was the last official mistress of Louis XV. She was beautiful and lived at Versailles and had replaced her predecessor, the very famous Madame de Pompadour. She would apparently dress Zamor up in amusing outfits and taught him all sorts, how to read, play music, and it seems Zamor managed to get by by making the people of Versailles laugh and getting up to all sorts of 
mischief, such as plucking the powdered wig from an aristocratic head, much to the hilarity of the onlookers. But despite living in a chateau and receiving an education, he was by all accounts a plaything, a possession, and felt used and humiliated by Madame du Barry, even though he was not technically a slave. During the revolution, Zamor, amongst others, testified against Madame du Barry at her trial, though to be honest, her position surely meant that she was for the chop regardless of any testimony. And, had she made better choices about staying in England rather than coming back to France in the middle of a revolution, she may well have kept her head. She, unlike many, did not face her executioner with calm composure. On the way to the guillotine, she collapsed and screamed for mercy and begged the watching crowd for help. Her last words to the executioner are said to have been De grâce, monsieur le bourreau, encore un petit moment. One more moment, Mr. Executioner, I beg you. She was buried in the Madeleine Cemetery. Zamor, for his part, finished his life impoverished, living in a small studio at number 13 Rue Maître Albert in the 5th, after his teaching business failed. He was buried, according to some sources, in a communal grave. In any case, there's no tomb in Paris that we can visit today. Now, whether the man in the picture is Zamor, inspired by Zamor, or just a face conjured up by the artist, it seems clear why the image and accompanying texts were so provocative. Of course, a black man in 18th century France may well be free and happy to enjoy a drink in a cafe, but this image is too ambiguous and suggests the opposite of what it apparently intends. Also, the language is no longer acceptable. Just like in English, it's now considered a slur and offensive. Should we forget about slavery and France's role? No. But is this really the way to remember? Finally, let's keep in mind that even though the man in this picture was not a slave or even a waiter, rather he is happily enjoying himself, we might ask why. Why is he so happy? Is it because he's being served delicious chocolate from this shop? Chocolate brought to Europe off the back of slavery, corruption and greed. The sign was finally removed and it's being kept at the Musée Carnavale, but not, it seems, on display. Let us now consider another example. I'm on the Rue Montagueil, a great market street which, despite the pandemic, is still bustling as it mainly has food shops which are allowed to stay open. This whole neighbourhood is great for food and restaurants and the second is one of my favourite arrondissements. Montegoy has some really lovely signs, the old ones mainly dating back to the 19th century, but there are some great modern ones too. When you're here, take a walk down the street and enjoy the atmosphere, delicious food and beautiful signage. It will be impossible to miss the restaurant L'Escargot Montegoy at the far end, which dates back to 1832. The huge snail reminds me of our last episode, when street signs grew to gigantic proportions. There's even a shop here with a great pun, a small general store called G. Dutou, which, when said with a French accent, becomes G. Dutou, or I have it all. Paris is, of course, famous for its patisserie. At number 51, you'll find Paris's oldest pastry shop dating back to 1725. On the occasion of her marriage to Louis XV, Marie Leginska came to Paris and brought with her her favourite pastry chef, Mr. Stoher. And five years later, he opened his shop in Rue Montegoy, and it has been here ever since. At number 78, you'll find the Rocher de Concal, which has been serving oysters for nearly 200 years and inspired Balzac, amongst others, so there's plenty to discover. 
but it's the sign at number 10, Rue de Petit Carreau, that interests us today. Here we find a late 19th century shop sign for a store selling exotic products, mainly coffee. A ceramic tiled image represents a shirtless young black man dressed only in a simple pair of red and white shorts. He's also wearing a red necklace, gold earring and golden bands around his biceps. He's standing, barefoot, holding a tray on which can be seen a steaming cup of presumably coffee. It's clear he's serving the white man sitting at the table in front of him. The white man is wearing a spotless white suit and shoes, as well as a rather elaborate hat. He's holding a pipe, and, needless to say, he sports a dapper little moustache. The two do not make eye contact. Their expressions are neutral. It is obviously meant to be somewhere hot, clearly not France. The white man is sitting on sacks of, again presumably coffee, and exotic-looking leaves frame the image. And should you be any doubt as to what you are seeing, then just above the sign is written Au Planteur, the planter. The planter meant the colonist or operator or owner of a plantation. The picture and the whole facade of this building are quite beautiful, but the meaning is distasteful and abhorrent. But should it be removed? Is it more or less offensive than Au Negre Joyeux? Although it has certainly been defaced less often, and for the moment is still in place, it recently was on the receiving end of the public's disapproval and black paint was thrown at it. I'll put a picture up for you to see. Following the Black Lives Matter protests and demonstrations, a number of statues linked to colonialism were defaced. The statue of Colbert outside the Assemblée Nationale was vandalised. You can see it on YouTube. Colbert was a minister under Louis XIV. He had a very long political career. However, he was also the minister who brought in the Code Noir, a sort of code of conduct about how to treat enslaved people, amongst others. However, President Macron gave a speech saying that the statue would not be taken down, but he went on that it does not mean things cannot change and is looking to adding diversity to street names and statues in the future by setting up a special commission. The subject of remembering and depicting France and Europe's shameful colonial past is ongoing. Can we forget? Should we? Should we take down racist signs or do they remind people of what happened? Is it even possible to remove all the images, figures and statues linked to colony? Would there be any left? In Gabrielle Schwartz's article for The Guardian, where she tries to make sense of her German family's involvement with the Holocaust and how people judge the past, she makes the point that, quote, If Britain and other nations want to come to term with their past, they need to accept a minimal consensus. Slavery and colonialism cannot be explained by the social and moral standards of a different age, but by a rapacious desire for domination and profit. How convenient that your thirst for exploitation is justified by a racial hierarchy in which you happen to be on top. In other words, the argument that we cannot judge people of the past by our standards is redundant. Those Europeans were motivated by greed and opportunism, and it suited everyone to turn a blind eye to the suffering happening so far away so that they might enjoy a cup of hot chocolate. Has anything changed? Today, greed pollutes our planet, creates huge inequality and continues to destroy lives. On a more light-hearted note, but excellently done, Clara Brown, a woman of colour whose handle Clara Bell CWB on TikTok, examines racism by imagining a world where white people had to put up with it instead.
In her video, If White People Encountered Resistance Removing Racist Imagery, she discusses the ridiculous resistance people have of removing outdated and offensive images from products or brands. In her example, she laments how she will miss Trailer Park Teresa and her sweet, toothless smile on her baking powder. It's nonsense to hold on to racist images just because they have always been there. They are damaging and hardly seem educational. Surely if we want to educate people about race, we should consider looking at the curriculum and addressing French and European history more fully. I was educated in the UK and I cannot attest to how much France deals with this, but certainly when I was growing up there was definitely not enough. I have two final recommendations for you if you'd like to know more. I'm currently reading Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, an excellent book by Rennie Edo Lodge, and it talks a lot about race, especially in Britain, so I can highly recommend that to you. And recently, while I was listening to Adam Buxton's podcast, he had a conversation with Kazuo Ishiguro, and he dips into this subject about how a nation can collectively remember the past, and should they? So, have a listen. They're both really interesting. Le Salon. To end, do you remember Oscar Lambert's book, Rue des Salauds? Now, this is a book where he discusses the names of famous streets named after figures with questionable characters. Well, I have one more that I'd like to add to his book. Rue Overlac in the 13th arrondissement. And I think he's a prime candidate for a name change. Now, while researching this episode, the subject of how streets get their names has been central to recap, for centuries it was left to the inhabitants, without any laws regulating them. Through the Middle Ages and until the Revolution, most street names were therefore associated with the social and geographical environment of the road. They were named according to the surrounding vegetation, Rue de Rosier, Rosebush Street. Monuments, Rue Saint-Paul, which is where the old St. Paul Church was located. The type of population, Rue de Boulanger or the signs present on the street, as we saw last time, the Rue de la Femme Sans Tête. It's not surprising, then, that the majority of the most unusual and evocative street names in the capital have their origin in this period. This is the case, for example, of the Rue de la Grande Rue-Andrie, so named in the 13th century in reference to the unsavoury population, and you can hear more about this on my episode in the Cour de Miracle. But it was at the beginning of the 17th century, under Henry IV, that the first official street names were given. They were no longer used only to find one's way around, but also to celebrate an individual or an event. The Place Dauphine, built in 1607 at the request of Henry IV, was one of the first roads named in honour of a personality, namely the young Louis, Dauphin of France and future Louis XIII. Little by little, tributes to personalities and events, Avenue de la Place Wagram, for example, or geographical locations, Rue de Nancy, Boulevard de Strasbourg, with no connection to the immediate environment of the place, imposed themselves on the choice of names. Which is how we find ourselves lumbered with Rue Ovelec, named after 19th century anthropologist. And I do hope you can hear the inverted commas around anthropologist. Abel Overlack was an anthropologist who, amongst his many ideas, believed strongly in the inferiority and superiority of races, going as far as to say some races are closer to apes. No prizes for guessing, according to him, which race that was. Does he need a road named after him? Surely not. I think I'd rather live on Rue de Rat, personally. 
Now, the naming of Parisian streets is normally only authorised in homage to a personality who's been dead for at least five years, but any citizen can make a suggestion. So by all means, send a message to the mayor of the 13th arrondissement expressing your feelings about this and perhaps suggest someone else. Extra points if it's a woman of colour, as they are sorely underrepresented everywhere and the streets of Paris are no different. For my part, I shall suggest Rue Legitimus. Legitimus was a socialist politician from Guadeloupe who served in the French National Assembly from 1898 to 1902 and then again in 1906 to 1914 and only the second black man to be elected to the French Parliament. He's often described as the black Jean Jaurès for his amazing oratory skills and was a firm believer in equality. His paper, Le Peuple, aimed to, quote, defend the small and humble, whatever the colour of their skin. And I think you'd be hard pushed to find a town in France without a Rue Jean Jaurès. So I think there should be at least one Rue Legitimus. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, then do subscribe as I can be a bit haphazard with the episodes. I'll put some pictures on Instagram for you to look at and of course my website. And if you're interested in learning more about black history in Paris and not just dodgy signs for shops, but amazing people who've lived here and contributed to Parisian life and culture, then may I recommend Black Paris Walks. I have not had the chance to go myself, but as soon as we get out of lockdown, I'm planning a trip. Finally, I also want to say, if you've enjoyed this episode and you think it sounds amazing, then that is in large part thanks to Christopher. He's also helping me get these episodes out by taking a massive amount of work off my hands and helping to edit. So thank you so much, Christopher. I'm going to actually link to his website in the show notes and you can see the other fabulous work he does. He's a music maestro and has all sorts of things to do with pianos and um lots and lots of creative projects. So have a look. And if you're a podcaster, you might want to get in contact with him yourself. Also, thanks to everyone who's got in contact with me and said that they're happy that the episodes are back. I do hope to keep them coming. So Karen, Pippin, Kate, Catherine Watt, London, Betsy and Lena, thank you for your messages and look forward to hearing from you again. Do let me know what you think about the episodes and any ideas that you have maybe for future ones. Take care of yourselves. Bye bye. 